The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. My name is Darren Carlson. I lead an organization called Training Leaders International that was born out of Bethlehem Baptist Church a while ago now, 12, 13 years ago. Some of you in this room were there when it happened. And uh, it's very, uh, just an honor to be here at the South Campus. I experienced the hospitality of Eden, Charlotte, and Cademan Vizbiki uh, on my visit. And uh, we're very grateful to those three. And uh, TLI sends missionaries around the world to provide theological training. And there are people even here who are part of TLI. Uh, Chris Bruno, who is headed to the Pacific Islands. Uh, Jim Jordan and Sarah Jordan are here with their uh, very bright and mature teenage kids. And we're glad that they're here. And so please say hi to them. Um, And one of the things that I've gotten involved in as part of TLI is uh, getting to meet a lot of people from a lot of different cultures. A lot of people who uh, come here to the U.S., and are worshiping here, even though they're kind of hidden from us. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about the hidden work of God. It's hidden because we're busy. It's not hidden because God's hiding. It's hidden because we're busy, and there's only so much we can keep track of. And sometimes we get discouraged because we're like, Lord, what are you doing in this world? Why is this all going crazy? Uh, And really, it's just our perspective needs to be changed that there's so much going on in this world and that you need to pay attention to the right sources and that when you pay attention to the right sources, you go, wow, the Lord is really at work. The Lord is really at work. So partly today, I want to encourage you. Partly today, I want you to open your eyes to see what's going on in this world and even within uh, our own city and state and country. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy to us in Christ, your love for the global church. Thank you for uh, the ministry of Training Leaders International that was started now 12 years ago um, as a ministry of this church. Thank you that it has outgrown anything any of us could have imagined in those first meetings in 2008. And now here we are in 2021, you're still at work in the world, and we thank you. You do more than we can ever imagine. And we get discouraged because our, uh, our view is so limited. We are finite creatures, Lord. We are easily discouraged. We wonder what you're doing. And so open our eyes to maybe just a small piece of what you do in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. I have three points from Acts 13. You know, when I, when I first started TLI, I didn't need these. And then something happened this year. Uh, Point one is diaspora people on mission. Two, how grace transforms a community of diaspora people. And three, diaspora people on mission. And yes, point one and point three are the same. I'm not being lazy. I didn't, I wasn't like out of ideas. It's on purpose. So diaspora people on mission, how grace transforms diaspora people on mission. Point one, now there was in the church of Antioch. Let me just get something out of the way. I keep saying the word diaspora. What is, it's like an insider word. What does diaspora mean? Diaspora just means people who are, live outside of the country they were born in. 
So if you were born in Japan and you live in the U.S. now, you are diaspora people. If you were you know, 100 years ago born in Sweden and attended First Baptist Swedish Church of Minneapolis, you were a diaspora people. It initially referred to the Jews who were scattered, and they were the diaspora. It was a, a word in the Greek Septuagint, the Old Testament, and now it just means anyone living outside of their home country. Everyone got it? Diaspora. Okay. First, now, church history. The background of the Church of Acts. Acts is a history book. So, 14 years prior to Acts 13, around 31-32 A.D., People flee to Antioch because of the killing of Stephen. We read in Acts 11 this, verse 19. Those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So Acts eleven twenty, we see that they're preaching the Jews and Gentiles. Just as an interesting side note and passing, no names of these people. You know, Luke is really careful about details. Could he have known? Who knows? Doesn't matter. The point is that there are so many unknown missionaries doing so many unknown things around the world, and all we get about this massive change in the movement of God, where the Gentiles are really purposely being reached for the first time, certain people from Cyprus and Cyrene. That's it! You know, I, I don't know about you, when I think of heaven, some people think about like, uh, you know, no tears, healing, you know, especially someone who's uh, older and they've been sick for a while, and how do you uh, refer to them in the, in the sermon at the, at the funeral? You say, they're okay. God has wiped the tears off their face. They're healed. But one thing I think about is the community. These unknown people doing work all over the world. You know, sometimes when people talk about missions, it's like Jim Elliott was the only missionary in the mid-20th century from the United States. We have these heroes that look like us, that are from where we're from, that have experienced what we experience, but there are 99.9% of missionaries, you don't know them. Their work is equally significant to the people who we read biographies about, who if you read their biography, you'd be like, that's crazy. Unknowns. Like the song, saints of old will line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace. Okay, Acts 13 doesn't just appear in midair. There are mechanisms that get Christians out, and most of them, at the beginning of Acts, are actually forced by God. It isn't necessarily missionary sending, the way we think of missionary sending. It's God pushing people out. We don't see people necessarily immediately going out under the direction of the apostles. And that's a unique feature of the Christian faith, that the Christian faith is more a movement than it is a top-down bureaucratic decision-making system where at all times you have to get permission to do the work of God. 
that the mission of God is determined by whether or not a church approves. Now, I'm going to get in trouble here because I'm a sent missionary at Bethlehem Baptist Church. I'm 100% for it. Don't hear that. Elders, please don't hear that. Thank you for your support. But it is worth wondering why people under the leadership of the apostles were not flung out. What is it about powerful teaching that actually brings people in and makes people stay? Not go. Stay. And if the only way you think about missions is pe- of people being sent by God is through churches training and appointing missionaries, guess what? You're wrong. The book of Acts shows us. God is forcing the church's hand in the history of Antioch. We see this in the Ethiopian eunuch, too. I mean, in Acts 8, it takes an angel to get middle-class Jewish man to share the gospel with someone who's, who lives far away. You know, you got Philip, who, if, if he was a normal Jewish man, would have prayed every morning, God, thank you that you did not make me a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. And then here's this Ethiopian eunuch, racially different, sexually altered from a thousand miles away, who didn't get on a plane and come to Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, when he got to Jerusalem to worship, the temple would have never let him in. And now an angel of the Lord gets Philip on the road, and here's this eunuch reading Isaiah. Hey, what am I reading? Can you explain it to me? It's like the pastor's dream, you know. I was reading the Bible, and I don't know what it says. Can you tell me? Why, yes. The movement of people is actually central to the whole mission of the story of God. The whole story of God, yeah. The first family gets kicked out of Eden. Cain wanders. The nations are scattered through language confusion. Abraham migrates to Mesopotamia, from Mesopotamia. Lot moves over a dispute over land. Jacob flees and returns. Jacob's sons go to Egypt after sending Joseph there by force. That's just the first book of the Bible. What's the second book? Exodus. An entire people moving, migrating. Slaves, famine victims, migrant workers. The people try to get into the land. They don't even get it all. But kings later transport the populations of Mesopotamia and Media. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon takes the leaders out. And now we see this longing in Scripture to be back home in the land. You know, I was with an Old Testament professor just a year ago. Prominent, written books. Says to me, I just realized for the first time that Ruth is a book about a migrant. Wait a second. You have a PhD in Old Testament, have written books, have taught the Old Testament, and you just noticed that? We read Scripture through the lens of our experience. And when, you know this. When Scripture speaks to your experience, it becomes alive to you. You see it in new ways. You even say these things to yourself. I'm reading the Bible and it just came alive. Why? Because you're reading it through your experience. 
Our theology is read through our experience. I'm going to get into trouble here. Our whole entire end times belief system in the last hundred years in the United States is shaped by what happens in the U.S. only. We're not the only country that does this, by the way. How do I know Jesus is coming back? Because it's hard where I live. Narrow reading of Scripture on our own experience that an Old Testament scholar who's written commentaries can say to me, after 15 years of teaching the Bible, wait, Ruth was a migrant? And it's through the Jewish diaspora, back to Acts now, where the network for the message of the resurrection goes out. Do you think those synagogues just randomly, magically appear? Paul and Saul and Barnabas, just in a synagogue, next city, in a synagogue, next city, in a synagogue. No, people moved. God set it up. And the founding of the Church of Antioch is a perfect example of how God moves people. Founded by Jewish believers who fled persecution in 31-32 A.D., People from Cyprus and Cyrene come over, and the church of Antioch is started. There's a uh, missiologist, someone who studies missions, Craig Ott, who lists four ways the relocation of people helps witness and mission in Acts. And I just want, if you think, if you've been a Christian a while, just think about the book of Acts here. The involuntary scattering of Christians to become bearers of good news. This is what's happening here. The relocation of non-Christians to come in contact with the gospel. That happens, Ethiopian eunuch, lots of places. Diaspora communities that provide the entry point for the gospel, the synagogues all over the place, and the diaspora churches and people who become preparation for future missionaries, gospel messengers. So involuntary scattering, relocation, entry point for the gospel, and preparation for future work. Diaspora people are often forced out. People don't want to leave home. They're leaving home mostly not by choice because they're hungry or there's been war or ethnic cleansing, all sorts of different reasons to move. Like the early church, and they're flung into missions. And sometimes Christians are forced to have diaspora people be right in front of them, like the book of Acts. And I just want to talk, okay, so... That's the book of Acts. Let's just talk about what's happening right now. You know, Christianity really is the only global religion. Beginning of the 20th century, you probably know this, 90% of all Christians lived in Europe and North America. Today, 75% of Christians live outside of Europe and North America. It's not because we've shrunk. It's because there's been an explosion you know, Laman Sine, who's a, what, he just, he passed away recently, was a, a Christian, a scholar at Yale. He wrote a book called, Whose Religion is Christianity? Whose Religion is Christianity? And he makes an interesting uh, point in the book about how every other major religion in the world, its geographic center, where it started, is still the place where all the adherents live. For example, 96% of Muslims live in the Middle East. North Africa, South Asia. 88% of Buddhists lived in South East, or in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in South Asia. 
Christianity is the only world religion, really. It's fanned out all over the place. There are more Anglicans attending church in Kenya than there are in Britain, Canada, and the U.S. combined. Get your mind around that. There are more Presbyterians attending church in Ghana than in Scotland. Four of the largest churches in the, U, in the, in the world are in South Korea. By 2050, only one in five Christians will be white. There are even 15,000 missionaries in the United Kingdom from Africa and Asia right now. 15,000! And Christians make up 50% of the diaspora people. There's 158 million, I know these are just numbers, but 158 million diaspora people, 50% of them are Christians. And it's not all been Christians. And so two things are happening right now. One, we'll just call it reverse mission. That is, the countries that receive the missionaries from the West are now bringing the gospel back to the countries that brought them the gospel. And second, there's all these people who have never had contact with the gospel who are now coming into places where the gospel is readily available. And this is where you come in. You think of these uh, people from other countries coming to the United States, forming the Ukrainian Baptist Church, the Russian Baptist Church, all these churches. Diaspora churches have very little impact on the culture around them. Very little. For a number of reasons. I mean, think back to, I mean, none of us were there, but when Bethlehem started, what was it? It was a Swedish speaking Baptist church. Do you think it had any impact outside of the Swedish speakers? No. It wasn't until they came in and adopted English, which was a huge fight, but they did it for the sake of mission, that they began to break out. Now, after a hundred years or more, now we see that we're able to infiltrate the culture and have people from different cultures in, but there's a reason why. They couldn't do it at the very beginning. These diaspora churches have a, a very short lifespan because they come, they do worship in Russian, and then the kids go to school, and the kids learn English, and the kids don't want to sing in Russian. They want to sing in English. There's a little book called Word Made Global about the diaspora churches in New York City. Now, when you think of ministry in New York City, if you've been a Christian for a while, who do you think of? What pastor do you think of? You think of one of the eyes, probably. Tim Keller, the pastor of New York. But guess what? He is a minority in terms of ministry impact compared to the diaspora churches. It's that we don't value them. We don't think of them as leaders. And they have these huge networks of mission, huge conferences where they get together, huge mission endeavors to various countries. Ever think of them? No, you think of secular New York City. New York City isn't secular. It's the most religious city in the country, driven by diaspora believers, pushed out like in Acts 13. Yeah, I was in Pennsylvania, 
and my friend, I, I just had preached on diaspora, not, not this pastor, something else, and he said, there are no diaspora people around here. I wish I could do something. And I said, I drove by five diaspora churches on the one road from my hotel to where I just spoke. Open your eyes. We have our eyes down. We don't see it. The work of God. You know, I've never been so shaken in my perspective on this as Christians coming to the U.S. as I was speaking in Minneapolis at a Gospel Coalition event, and guess what? It was, an Ethi- it was a church that hosted in an Ethiopian church that was, was worshiping in Amharic. And TLI, whose headquarters was just in downtown Minneapolis, was traveling 8,000 miles to train pastors where? Ethiopia. When these pastors who were preaching in Amharic, had the same theological kind of bent to them, hadn't really been trained, had the same kind of training and same training needs, and they were seven miles from our headquarters, but we were going 8,000 miles because it was Ethiopia. Same people. And that's why we decided, decided to start Diaspora Training Networks within the U.S., and that's now getting off. Hopefully we can, you know, meet sometime with these guys. But the second movement is the movement of non-Christians to us, like the Ethiopian eunuch. Think of my friend Jawad, comes to Christ, uh, from traveling from Iran to Europe, becomes a pastor, starts leading hundreds of Iranians to Christ. Then a couple, uh, a year passes, and a guy he, he had shared the gospel with had come to Christ, and moved, but he hadn't, didn't know that, came to the Netherlands, called Jawad and said, Jawad, I've led 200 Iranians to Christ. I came to Christ after you shared the gospel with me. Sorry I haven't been in touch. Can you come here and help us and teach us here in the Netherlands? Because I've got 200 new believers. Or my friend Girme came to Christ reading a Benny Hinn, or listening to a Benny Hinn tape in Khartoum. I was talking to him once. He goes, what's the difference between John MacArthur and Benny Hinn? I'd like to know. I said, uh, Okay. You know, Girme baptized hundreds, thousands of Eritreans. North Korea, Eritrea, top two persecuted countries in the world. Pastors now in Toronto, Hamburg, Germany, London, England, all saved in his church. Migrants on the move, coming into contact with the gospel where they've never had an opportunity to hear the gospel and now are saved. Are saved. Today's migration is different. North America was the target of European migration, and now we're receiving immigrants from Asia and the Middle East. You know, 85% of all Christian evangelism is to places where Christianity is already the dominant religion. That is going to change. And I've seen this happen firsthand. And look, I know that the immigration debate complicates this issue, and I'm not even going to go there. I know you guys are sad about that, but I'm just not going to go there. Let me just throw this antidote at you to weigh on you. I was with an American missionary. The American missionary says to me, Darren, uh, I, you know, I lead all these people to Christ, these Muslims uh, who are coming into the country where he's serving. He's doing all this work with immigrants, 
huge amount of fruit. It's amazing. All of you would want to be involved in his work. And I said, and he, he comes from a very conservative political background. I say, hey man, do you think you would do this in the U.S.? And he said, no way. We got to build a wall and protect our border. I would never do this ministry. And that line is the attitude of most Christians who would be willing to send people anywhere to do that ministry, but to do it at home? No. Let that weigh on you. My friend George Tolios, a Greek, had the opposite thing happen to him when he planted a Greek church reaching Greeks, and all of a sudden there was a refugee camp across the street, and he started inviting Muslims into his church. And after about a year, one Muslim stood up in the very conservative Bible study on Wednesday nights and said, I'd like to thank you for your hospitality. I think I'd like to become a Christian now. And everyone in Bible study started crying because they were prejudiced, and they had spoken harshly against all the people across the street. And here was a guy standing in their Bible study coming to faith in Christ. Let that weigh on you. People are on the move for all sorts of reasons. Paul tells us in Acts 17 why. He's preaching in Athens, and what does he say at the end? He has created man to live and appointed a boundary of his dwelling places so that they might seek God and perhaps reach out to him and find him. That's why people are moving. That's why my friend... Uh, talks to an Afghan guy, and the Afghan guy says, why did you never come and share the gospel with us in Afghanistan? And then uh, before he could answer, the guy said, I know why. It's because we would have killed you. So we, God has brought us out of Afghanistan so you can share the gospel with me. You know, we celebrate, last thing on this point, we celebrate diversity of culture probably here at Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem's really into missions, but let me just be uh, honest with us, me. Most of us celebrate uh, culture and diversity as consumers. Consumers. Like, we live in the city. Isn't it cool? I went to my Thai restaurant, and I was nice to the Thai person who gave me the food. I'm on mission for Jesus. We're consumers of the city. We're consumers of the diversity. We're not entering in. We're not partnering with. I remember these African pastors would tell me, you know, these American pastors, they always want to come and preach at my church. They've never invited me. It's not equals. It's not co-laborers. It's not people on mission like the Church of Antioch. It's top-down bureaucratic nonsense. We're in power. I'll come to you. Maybe your choir can sing here. Can you make us some food? We're takers. All right. How grace transforms the community. Also verse 1. The church grows to the point where Barnabas gets sent. That's Acts 11. Barnabas recruits, goes to Tarsus, gets Saul, and he's there for an entire year teaching. Gentiles are now coming to faith. This is where the people are called Christians for the first time. Now it's 45 AD. Saul and Barnabas have been missionaries for years at this point. All this to say, we have veterans. This is a side note. This is the reason why we know Saul didn't change his name to Paul at conversion. Maybe you've heard that before. It's been 14 years. He's still Saul. 
They change his name to Paul when he goes to the Gentile mission, because that's his name. His name is probably Saul Paul. Leave that aside. Okay, check out the leaders. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, Saul. You've got a Levite from Cyprus. You've got a black African. You've got a Roman from Libya. And then you've got Manaean, who has a couple things said about him. And then Saul the Pharisee from Asia Minor. Now, Manaean, I mean, you know, when you read, I don't know what you do when you read uh, names and cities, but you tend to kind of skip because they're hard to pronounce. Maybe I'm the only one. Okay, so you, you don't skip over those names. Read them slowly. Think about what each of them mean. And think about Manaean in particular, who some, the ESV translates it, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, or some would say half-brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Who's Herod the Tetrarch? Okay, Herod the Great has some boys. He divides his land four ways, tetrarchs. Herod the tetrarch is Herod Antipas. Who's Herod Antipas? The guy who had John the Baptist beheaded. The guy who's part of the crucifixion of Jesus. And Manaean, who grew up with that guy, is now the leader of the church of Antioch. That's crazy. So you've got Saul, who was killing Christians 14 years prior. Barnabas, the encourager from Cyprus. And Manaean, and then you've got these two Africans. I mean, consider how much reconciliation had to happen for those guys to be in the same room together. But here's something even more crazy. I mean, some people take Acts 13 and like preach it like a small group's message. You know, like, look at all the backgrounds. Uh, now go be in small group together. I mean, it's okay, but this is better. Listen, the gospel goes from Jerusalem. Believers end up in Antioch because Stephen gets killed. The Antioch church grows. Well, who is at the stoning of Stephen? Who was there? Who was killing the Christians? Saul of Tarsus, 14 years prior. And now that church founded by the people who fled there and moved, are now letting Saul teach them, and then they're going to put their hands on the guy and say, go be our missionary. What kind of message does that? Some of you have moved. I hate moving. They went from the holy city of Jerusalem to the Greek-speaking cesspool of Antioch. And there's the guy who killed their friend. It's only been 14 years. They would still be in the church. I get excited about this. You know, there is a kind of a feel-good unity that comes when you meet a Christian for the first time. You know what I'm talking about? Like on a plane or at a conference. We're all Christians and you get kind of the warm fuzzies. Isn't it great? We're redeemed by Jesus. That's kind of cheap unity. But if you're in a church together for a long time. Uh, it's harder. <laughs> Real unity's harder. And, and they're allowing Saul to teach them for a year, and now they're going to put their hands on them. I think of a church I was at. Uh, it was an Afghan church. The, the guy preaching was Korean. He was preaching in English, and then there was the Afghan pastor who was translated from English to Dari, and the Korean had been held by the Taliban for 40 days. Uh, prior to being in, in the city he was in. And the Afghan pastor used to be a religious police officer. 
And there they were, standing next to each other, going from uh, second language English to second language English to first language Afghan in an Afghan fellowship. I think of my friend Bill, Jewish background believer, teaching Iranians. And when the Iranians found out he was Jewish, they just hugged him. They started singing. They were so excited. I've seen Indians and Pakistanis who, guess what, they don't get along. And I've seen them do all-night prayer vigils together. I've seen Ethiopians and Eritreans plant churches. There is a different kind of deep unity that the gospel creates that allows people to be on mission together from different cultures. It can transform hearts to the point of saying, you know, you forced me to move and you killed my friend and now you're my missionary. Go be on mission. If you read the storyline of Scripture, you find that the arc of Scripture bends towards the reconciliation of the nations. Not the obliteration of cultures, but the welcoming of cultures into the new Jerusalem. And we are the minority now. Last point, diaspora people on mission. It's the first point. This is a great circular message. So the missionaries have come, people have been scattered, churches started, 14 years passed. Reconciliation has obviously happened within the church. Saul's been teaching there. And then, you know, you, you kind of read the text here, and I, I kind of skip over this. The Holy Spirit said, what does that mean? Audible voice? I mean, they were worshiping. Audible voice? Maybe through the prophets? Ask Dave. I don't know. Notice the church is fasting. It means all the churches together. So, and when the missionaries come back, they report what's going on. They're taking seriously now sending someone. So this is the bureaucratic decision-making. Barnabas and Saul are our top two guys. We should send them out. You ever been in a church where you don't send the less qualified people away? but your best people away? We tend to hoard, right? Hoard the giftings? No, stay here. Stay with us. And they place hands on them. This is commissioning. It represents blessings. You know, before COVID, we actually did this. Hands on. The Greek literally means they release them from Antioch. It says, you know, we're part, you're part of us. We support you. We are with you. You will be with us. And the fact that the whole church gets a report back means that the whole church is involved here. Not the leaders, everyone. Everyone. And this is important. Some, somewhere, I mean, plans have been made. The Holy Spirit tells them, but they're making some plans because they're going to be traveling. The church attests to Saul and Barnabas's character. We know that from pastoral epistles and other places. They've proved themselves. This is similar to 3 John in verse 6 when it says, send them in a way, in a manner that it honors God. You know, it's not that the church of Antioch has missionaries. It's that the church is sending missionaries. It's not line item, budget, few. We got the mission part done. No, no, they're sending them. They're commissioning them. You are ours. If you get stuck, we will help you. At great loss to ourselves, you belong to us. 
It recognizes the supreme importance of proclaiming God and word and deed among the nations. And so what happens next? Well, I'll, I'll end with this because I see that clock persecuting me back there. Saul and Barnabas head out on mission. And they start by using his home base, what? Diaspora peoples. Diaspora Jews. And so now it comes for full circle. The church of Antioch is founded by diaspora people forced to move due to persecution. The church then is transformed into this multicultural, amazing church with all sorts of issues. People from different backgrounds and leadership. And then that church that was started by scattered believers puts their hands on the guy that scattered them and says, go. Go. This is the story we're caught up in. This is our identity. When Peter writes his letter, he calls the Christians chosen exiles, chosen sojourners. It's one thing to have power and to be the majority culture. It's another thing to be considered an exile, a sojourner, an outsider, chosen. All the blessings are yours in Christ. You belong to Jesus from the foundations of the world. In love, he predestined you to be adopted. In love, he pours out all blessings in you in Christ. Sojourner, outside of all the power, outside of all blessing, you have nothing. You are a visitor. When you take that on as your identity, your eyes are opened and you see what God is doing in the world. Open your eyes and join in God's mission as he brings reconciliation to all nations and peoples here in this place, not far away, here. Let's pray. Father, around the world many things are happening. I've given many examples and that's just like a sliver of a little pin drop of one little thing. And so, Lord, help people here to open their eyes, not to be consumers of other cultures, but on mission with our brothers and sisters from places around the world, not as takers, but as partners. Help us to see your work, especially when we're discouraged and we don't know what's going on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.